Hey, hello and welcome to Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, where through stories, gems are uncovered to inspire, uplift and encourage action. This is Karen Purvis, your host. Let's dive deep into today's episode. Hi, and welcome to today's episode. And what a fabulous episode it's going to be. I've got Winnie Anderson here today, and let me just share something about her. Winnie's life has been focused on helping individuals and organizations face their goal, reach their goals. As a business achievement strategist, she helps introverted coaches, consultants, and other expert solution providers get the courage, confidence, and clarity to own their expertise, boldly get their message out, and create the success they dream of and deserve. Winnie is a best-selling author, an award-winning copywriter with a master's in human resources and an undergraduate degree in education. She is a student of motivation, behavior, and learning, and is driven to help female solopreneurs create the, the abundant businesses they dream of and deserve. She understands the fears and strategies that can get in the way of introverts especially when they bring emotional wounds with them, because in addition to being an introvert herself, she also continues to work to move past her own complex trauma from emotional abuse and neglect and a brain injury sustained in a car accident. Well, Winnie, it's uh, fabulous to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Cool. I think you have a very interesting story in as much that when we were talking before, you mentioned that you are now, you are now an introvert, but you weren't always. Right. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. What, describe how you were before you became yeah. an introvert. I would have described myself as an ambivert, you know, I, 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 of course, I thought I was an extrovert, but now that I've come to learn about the spectrum of personality types, I understand that I was closer to an ambivert and that I had a few introverted type of tendencies. For example, I was a a human resources professional and one of my specialty areas is recruiting and the other is in, is training. So I may conduct a workshop and, and teach all day. And when that was over, and you can imagine I was impossibly drained. I never, I didn't want to talk for hours after that. And I understand now that that's part of the introverts way of rejuvenating and re- replenishing their fuel supply, if you will. So uh, the accident that I had in 1999 is what really turned me into an introvert. There are a lot of things about me that are different now post-trauma, blow to my head. Um, And I just over the years have learned to adapt and embrace the new me, if you will. Um, Some things about me are, are bigger, like my introversion. Some things are smaller. And it's just, it, it's just part of, of now who I am. I, was, I had been married only six months at the time of my accident. So my husband said goodbye to his wife, who he had known for like eight years or so, and went to see his new wife in the hospital because I wasn't the same person. Wow. Wow. So that's... That's, that's sort of traumatic on all sorts of levels, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is, it is on all sorts of levels. I, I tell people that the biggest issue, problem, the, the biggest issue of having a brain injury is the blow to your self-esteem because you're not who you were. And every person who has a traumatic brain injury, their experience is different because the brain is such this, you know, big gelatinous mess with all of these little curves and things like that. So while my initial, you know, my initial impact 
is I'm pointing to the area just above my right eye as I describe this. That's the initial blow of impact. That's the area that controls impulse control. But just a hair to the front or the back, if that same blow had happened to you, your experience in recovery would be very different and the changes to your personality would be very different, even though your blow is technically in the same place. So I hope that makes sense. But wow. it's, it's, yes, it's very startling to, to realize, you know, I woke up in the emergency room and one of the first things that I realized was happening was I was having my head stitched. And I couldn't stop repeating the question that I was asking the doctor. I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm stitching your head. And as soon as he would answer, I would ask him, what are you doing? Mm. And, and at some point, I could feel that I was saying the same thing over and over again. And I almost wanted to hold my mouth shut because the compulsion to say those same words over and over again it was a compulsion. I, I couldn't stop it. And that's because of that area that, that, was, that had been hit on, on it, impulse. That, it, it's that area, but it's also the front of the, of the head, of the brain, the forehead area. That controls executive functioning and short-term memory. So, you know, that's a pretty short term that you just said something. I didn't remember it. No. I mean, it, just inst- it, it, it was this compulsion to say the same thing over and over again. It was mm. awful. Mm. Mm. My, uh, my daughter had uh, epilepsy and when she had, so there were only uh, a few occasions when she would have a bunch of seizures all, all together and that would render her like that, where she would have no short-term memory. Um, she would had the same conversation in a 30 second cycle exactly the same and she wouldn't even know she didn't even know that she was having that conversation right so when um when her friends came to the hospital i told them to just play along with the fact that you are only going to have the same 30 second conversation and never to talk about it never remind her when she comes back to normal that she that's what she was like. It's just better that she didn't, that she wasn't aware. So I, I get, I get that. I didn't realize that like that must've been worse than the fact that you were aware that you were doing it. She was never aware. It was, it, uh, it was terrible. Um, one of the biggest challenges, you know, the, it was hard enough to relearn how to learn. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest challenges that I faced was the memory of what I was like before. Mm. And about, let's say, my accident happened in March of 99. In sometime in 98, the end of 97, I graduated from grad school, got my master's degree in human resources. I graduated in the top 10% of the school. I was smart. And I didn't realize how important that was to me and, and how much of my self-image was tied to the belief that I was smart. Mm, interesting. And suddenly I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't control what I was saying. I had, you know, very little short-term memory. And it was demoralizing. I won't kid you. It was depressing. How did the people who were close to you, how did they react to you as well? <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting conversation, because so I lived obviously lived with my husband. I was married. My brother lived nearby. He lived about maybe twenty minutes away from me. But my family lived ninety minutes away from me. None of them came to see me. And in the recovery process, my husband to this day it's been twenty years. He doesn't want to talk about the accident. If it, if it comes up or something about my head comes up or I say something about, oh, I forgot that, um, he, he'll say, you know, can't you stop talking about it? No, I can't. It, it's, part of, it's part of who I am. I, I can't act like it didn't happen. It did happen. I know it happened. So, and it's, it's changed me in many ways. And they're not bad ways. 
it's just, it's changed me. I can't deny that it happened. And I've had other people who back early in my recovery, who were visibly bothered by my talking about it and who were visibly, you know how you could just see the person is like really uncomfortable. And I think that part of that is naturally we all reflect on our own mortality. I should have died. Most of the people who have injuries like mine die. So you're looking at somebody knowing full well they should have died, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it touches an element of themselves and, and they feel their own mortality. And what do you say, right? There's always that thought of somebody is, has now been traumatically changed. What do you say to them? Mm. You know, do you, do you bring it up? Do you not bring it up? Do you say you're sorry? Should you be sorry? What do you do? And I think that we're all different, but I think a lot of people are uncomfortable around illness in general. And so for a lot of people, it was uncomfortable. For my sisters, of course, they took advantage of my poor memory. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that um, with regards to people's reactions. I had a very similar reaction when my daughter died. And that for, for a lot of the same reasons, I think, that it was the unspeakable had happened, the, un, the unconscionable that um, your daughter would die. Um, that froze people out. They didn't know what to say. They too, you know, you could see the ticker tape running through their head. Oh my God, what would happen if my daughter died? Or a lot of people just left. Left, So the time when I needed the most help and support, it became too scary for a lot of people. So it's interesting that you had you had that experience and it was so alike mine for completely different mm-hmm. causes, like you were still there. Right, okay. So you're aware that you are different and you've gone from being an ambivert to a, an introvert. So did you did you have a job to go back to or, did, or, was, or, or, or did that go? I was the director of human resources and I had been promoted three times in 18 months. I was about to be promoted again at the time of the accident. I was the director of human resources for a large chapter of the American Red Cross. So I had a big job and I was in the hospital for a week. You know, they kick you out pretty quick in the United States if you're sick. So the fact that I had to stay in there for a week, that tells you I was pretty bad. And I was home for another week And I'm just not the kind of person to stay home and linger. And, you know, I wanted to get back to work. I had a big job to do and I wanted to get back to it. So I tried to go back to work. But what happened was when I was released from the hospital, the doctor who released me, first of all, he never looked at me. He just went through some papers and said, okay, you have a brain injury and the way you are now this is the way you're going to be for the rest of your life. That's it. And that was it, Don. I mean, he just, I really felt dismissed. And I'm like, wait, what? What what do I have? What are you talking about? And I thought, there is no way I am going to be like this for the rest of my life. That's not going to happen. But of course, I didn't know how to not be like this. And so I just tried to resume my, my life. You know, I went back to work. And when you have a brain injury, you often don't discover the full depth of the injury until you try to resume your yeah. life. Yeah. So I went to work and that was the first time that, well, it wasn't the first time, but uh, it was the first time I became really conscious of, I couldn't see to put a key in the door. I couldn't open my office without shutting one eye because I had double vision. I had, because I had poor impulse control because of this particular injury, I would lose my temper 
and I was somebody who never lost their temper. There's just, you know, work is just not that important, right? I mean, I, I work hard, but let's keep things in perspective, right? So somebody would say something relatively innocuous, and I would just go from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. And that was when I realized there's something wrong with me. I'm not like that. What's the matter with me? So as, you know, I kept trying to figure this out. And finally, my husband said, look, you need a doctor. There is something deeply wrong with you. And that's when I made an appointment with my general practitioner, my family doctor, and he took over my care. He said, you need a team of doctors. Your job is to get better. So I tried to, to stay at work for a little while longer. That doesn't but, surprise me. <laughs> but after a few months, it didn't work. I, yeah. had, to, I had to focus on getting well. And, yeah. and it was that intense care that I received in the first six months that is the reason why I'm as articulate as I am now and why I can function at the level I do now, because I'm sure if I hadn't told you that I had a brain injury, you would never know. No, no, not at all. Um, but then I didn't know you before, so I'm taking you for the person right. I'm meeting today. Um, right. So I have no reference. But, you know, you're an articulate person. There's woman, you know. Thank you. And, and also... You know, you, you come across as still that bright person. I mean, thank you. You might, you may have been brighter, but I didn't know that person, so <laughs> it doesn't. You were in that care and they were concentrating on giving your, uh, easing the stress, I would have thought, easing the pressure. So That's there's part a physical, of it. physical pressure, but there's also the emotional pressure that you put that that the that correct job would have you know like you're putting yourself under. So they're wanting to ease that so that you had a more calm, and then that enabled the brain to go yeah. through it. Yeah. So I had yes, I had a neurologist, and that person because I had a whole host of. In injuries mm. and and really it's amazing what little knowledge doctors have about brain injury and brain function i lost a lot of i have a lot of nerve damage in my head i lost some sensation in my gums my tongue you know i don't know if my taste buds were really changed or not i don't have a sense of that but a lot of nerve damage in my in my whole head i have a pronounced vision problem and I had to have surgery to in an effort to correct it it didn't correct it 100% but I had to have surgery I have a back problem I have, so I have a whole host of these issues in addition to this brain injury so I needed to have a psychologist I needed to work with a psychologist because you can bet I was frustrated <laughs> to yeah. say the least so yes there's a lot of stress I'm living with a, a, my husband who doesn't want to talk about it so oh, I had want to talk about it from the from the very from the very beginning. From the moment it happened, right? It's it, you're out of the hospital. It's over. You're in recovery. It's 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 over. You're going to be better. And I'm not talking about it. I'm yeah. So, so that so was so I had, scary, scary for him that he, he's he's actually bolted the door shut, and even 20 years later, it's still bolted shut. Yes. Wow. It is. Yes. Yeah. So the, but the big improvement came when I got to an occupational therapist <clears throat> and she's the reason I function the way I do. It was awful. It was so stressful to, to be forced to do those exercises and, and all of that, that practice and relearning all the things I had to relearn and, and refiling all the files in my head. It was incredibly stressful. I hated every minute of it, but I'm so thankful that I was able to get that kind of care because unfortunately, many, many people who have a brain injury do not get that level of care. 
for a variety of reasons, at least in the United States. And I am so blessed that I was able to have that awful, awful experience. I think one of the things that I'm listening to you talk, and I think one of the things that you are you haven't articulated is there's a strength that you have and that strength is perseverance. So even though you hated every moment of having to learn, that that frustration didn't stop you from, you know, it, 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 it didn't, you, you had a choice. At, with, when you experience that frustration, you actually had a choice. You had a choice to then go, oh, no, this is, I hate this too much. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go off and do something else. Or you go, okay, I really hate this, but I know it's doing me good, even though I don't like it. I'm going to continue because I can see at the end of the day, there is promise. I don't know what it's going to look like, but there's promise. Where did that come from? It is the same part of me, I think, that allowed me to survive an abusive environment growing up. So, you know, there's always that mystery of personality, right? So I don't know if, where, where does DNA start and where does nature take over, yeah. right? Where, where does that happen? So I think that it like for so many of us, it's, it's just this unique combination of, I probably had a little bit of it that I caught in, in DNA roulette, right? Just through my genes, I come from a tough bunch of people. And then there's that extra bit that when I experienced the trauma in my home life, the button that was pushed for me was, you're not going to win. Interesting. Yeah, so I've always had this little stubborn streak in me. And yeah, I think it really was a big part of what worked to help me overcome the injury because I was in denial in some ways because when I say this is not going to be the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life, you know, you have a brain injury, you have a brain injury. You are that way for the rest of your life. But I just refused to accept that there were things that I, in air quotes, couldn't do or shouldn't do, and I was doing them. And I was determined to get back as much as possible of what was truly me. And yes, it wasn't pretty, but I, I yes, I'm a very determined person. I'm going to figure something out. Mm, mm, that's good. So let so I just wanted to acknowledge that because you weren't, it, it was there, but you weren't expressing it um, explicitly. And I think sometimes perseverance doesn't get a good press. And yet it's a, it's actually, you know, if you really want to make something of your life, then that's the one thing that's going to get you through the grind, get you through the tough times, which is what you were explaining. You know, you were saying that you hated it. You hated doing all of these exercises, but you persevered. And wasn't that a great thing to do? Because look at who you are now. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't pretty, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that as part of the brain injury, all of the, the, the trauma of the abuse that you had as a child re-emerged, even though you thought you'd dealt with it, it was actually arising afresh. Um, yeah. So tell me how that impacted not just you, but also you've got a marriage, you know, so it's a whole different ball game than maybe yeah. when you did it when you looked at your your past um, at the first time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I acknowledged that what happened to me was abuse back in the mid '80s. So I I labeled it that way, 
And I thought that I had dealt with it at that time in the 80s when I realized that what happened could be classified as abuse. And I dealt with that the way I, I dealt with a lot of things. And that is just, okay, that's what it is. It's abuse. I'm just going to push that in the back of my head and Aww. I'm just going to keep moving forward, right? Because you don't get where you want to go by looking in the rearview mirror. Yes. So yeah. I just thought I'm not going to, you know, I'm done. I'm, I'm done letting that control my life. You know, I recognized that there were things about it, that experience that then, of course, made me who I was. Mm. So I wasn't going to sit around going, oh, poor me. You know, I'm not this, this, I'm this awful person. I had this awful experience. Yeah. Okay, that happened. It was bad. I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. I thought, I thought. So what happened with the accident was in the, and I had a friend of mine who, a friend of mine specializes in, in PTSD. She uh, helps, she helps nurses process this vicarious trauma that they deal with by watching, you know, just one disaster after another. Mm-hmm. So she explained complex trauma to me and PTSD and, and she explained what was happening. And of course I understood it because I'm, I'm an educator and I, I do study how to, how learning and how it works. And, and of course I had to study it when I was, when I was really learning how to learn. And the way I describe it is, is the, in organizing the files as the brain, because the brain never turns off, right? It's mm-hmm. always working. As the brain's working to put my files back together, it's trying to match up new information with old information. So in my language, what happened was the brain went, oh, look, here's some trauma. We're going to put it in this file folder. See? Look at this trauma we found. And really, suddenly, those memories just came flooding back to me. It, you know, you, you hear the description of my life passed before my eyes. That's really what it felt like. It was like watching something just come zipping by, and it would happen in the most inopportune moments. And um, what, what, I had, what had happened was, I, of course, I, I couldn't go back to work because I really did need to focus on my recovery. And then I decided that, you know what, I, I, I don't think I could work in that level of position again. I don't think I could work in the stressful kind of environment, the corporate yeah. life. is. So I'm going to try and do this on my own. So what happened was I realized that I had lost my ability to sell anything. I literally couldn't have sold a heater to the Eskimos. I couldn't do anything, which is very frustrating. So at this point, my husband and I were geographically separated. He had lost his job, and the only job he could find was 500 miles away. So he, was, he lived in that uh-huh. other place, and we saw each other you know, over Skype and uh-huh. saw each other in person maybe once a month. So you have nothing to do but been around the 2008. It was. It's exactly right. Yeah, it was right around the crash. Um, I had actually gotten a a job that let me work out of the house and manage my my care. But he had to go to, you know, states away, 500 miles away. So (laughs) you got nothing. I got nothing to do but work. And I'm sitting in my office one night and I had one whole wall of my home office in my other house was painted floor to ceiling in whiteboard paint was fabulous. Right. Yeah. So, and that's what I'm, you know, as I look, I'm I'm seeing that in my mind's eye. And so I decided that I was going to, I had to figure this out. Yeah. And of course I'm going to figure this out myself. So what I did was I wrote on one side of the wall, I wrote everything that I could not do everything that I struggled with. And I was as painfully honest with myself as I could be. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the wall, I wrote everything I wanted. And then I just sat there and I looked at them. And I tried to figure out the gap, which is, that's what I did as a human resources professional. My job was to look at the gap. It was to identify why a department couldn't reach its goals and to come up with a solution and then solve it. Yeah. So uh, that's when I had this massive epiphany 
that the strategies that I had used to manage, navigate a hostile home life had actually helped me become a successful corporate professional, a director on, on track to be an executive. But out on my own, those same strategies were now actively holding me back. So things like perfectionism, um, going along to get along, swallowing my emotions, because when my mother would abuse me, there was no, I, I discovered very early on that crying didn't, didn't help. If I cried, she kept up. So, all right, that doesn't work. I'm not going to let you see how much you hurt me. Mm-hmm. So I swallowed that. And of course, as a kid, you know, you're getting this abuse. Naturally, you get angry, right? Mm-hmm. I did anyway. Mm-hmm. But of course, you can't be angry because you can't let, you can't, I didn't want to let her see that she had any impact on me whatsoever. So in my job would then in the hope that it would stop, yeah. right. In the yeah. hope that it would stop, yeah. that she would yeah. see that, well, I can't, you know, I'm not tormenting you. So, all right, I'll give up. Right. Okay. So, so I had learned to control my emotions so well that I'd almost lost the ability to even feel to a degree. Right. And mm-hmm. now I have a head injury. I can't control them. All I do is feel them. So I went through this whole, this just this giant realization that okay so now what I need to do is I need to keep what works and I need to get some new strategies well I wish this was like okay so I just flip that switch and that's what yeah you know, this is a painful process yeah we're talking about so, yeah, so yeah. At, that, at that point I had a what I would describe as a full-on nervous breakdown uh. That's, you know, I don't know that that's the diagnosis that, that somebody would give me, but that's what I would call it because I couldn't function. I just could not function. Hmm. I collapsed. I was a mess because now I'm experiencing every emotion accelerated. Right. So, and, and are you still trying to do everything on your own or uh, at what point did, did you seek help? No. That was the moment. So um, I sent my husband an email and I said, do not call me. I do not want to get on Skype. I have to just vent this before I can talk to you. So I sent him this giant email about what had just happened to me, the epiphany that I had come to, and that I needed help. Well, that's good. So, um, again, my little hard-headed person, for, when I was a kid, to escape, I would read. Oh, okay. Right. Read novels or? Anything. Okay. I would read anything. So, and I was able to read very, very, at a very young age. I could read by the time I was like three. Okay. So, um I just had this feeling that the answer was in a book somewhere, that I couldn't be the only person that ever dealt with this. There must be a book. <laughs> so I went to Amazon and started to look for books. Yeah. And I found one and it really helped. I think it was called the healing the child within or something like that. Healing the emotional self. I, I don't really remember yeah. the author though. Her name is Beverly Angle. And so I read the book it was great. Oh my God, somebody gets me. Somebody understands this. I'm not nuts. And so I, I looked her up online. She'd been on Oprah. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. So I'm thinking, oh God, she must cost a fortune, but let me reach out to her. Maybe if she can't help me, maybe she can send me to someplace else. Yeah. Thankfully she undercharges. <laughs> so I worked with her for about six months and I probably should have stayed in therapy after the accident longer than I did. I needed more help than, than I had really recognized. Uh, but anyway, 
Valerie, uh, Valerie Beverly really did help me. So for six months, I had therapy with her. And then I was able to begin to move forward on my own. I do run into moments when I need like a tune up and I need, I need someone to help me to continue to process. But I'm probably as healthy emotionally as I've been in, in 20 years. In, in 56 years, probably. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about your, your epiphany of, OMG, I need some help. How does, how do you, how do you function in your life today? Do you call on help more readily? Yeah. It, you know, help isn't seen as being a hindrance or, you know, how does, like, you know, it's like it's okay having an epiphany and that's a temporary thing. In, mm-hmm. in, in the moment you realise I can't do this alone. Right. But then there's this other option where you can make a permanent change with right. realising you can't do everything on your own. Right. So tell me a bit about that. Right. So, uh, as I said, what happens in childhood, the strategies that, you know, and this is actually a psychological concept, so I'm not the, the smarty pants who dreamed this up. This really does work. What happens is we develop these strategies to deal with our situation, and those strategies become habits and become patterns. Mm-hmm. So then all of those things that help us survive in that environment then get played out in school and get reinforced. So because I was so committed to not causing anybody any problems and invoking the wrath of my mother, which, you know, there was no rhyme or reason to why she would go crazy, but my little brain is trying to figure this out rationally, which wasn't working. So uh, those are the same strategies then that make you a star student. Mm. Because you're not going to do anything that's going to to make you act out in in class, right? You're not going to be bad. So those behaviors get reinforced once again. Then you go into the workplace. Oh, in corporate, you'd be an absolute dream employee. I was a star. That's exactly right. I was a star from my first job. I was a star, right? So... Of course, I, I get educated, I, I go into corporate life, and yes, I'm a dream employee. So those behaviors are very deeply, deeply, deeply reinforced. And you, know, you want to keep what is productive, but also, so also in corporate life, what also gets reinforced, though, is that you never ask for help, because that is a sign of weakness. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I... So that belief that asking for help is a sign of weakness, that actually started in childhood because I would ask for help and I didn't get any, mm. right? I had to make my own food. I had to, I got a job to pay my own bills. My parents never taught me how to brush my teeth. So I was responsible for myself. So that concept of asking for help there was no way I was going to. That's yeah, the hardest part of this. Yeah, the self-reliance. So you were brought up with self-reliance, to be self-reliant. Right. And so, it got reinforced. Yeah. So to ask for help was massively huge. So tell me what happened next. I'm really keen to know what's happened about asking for help. So that was one of the things that was the hardest to recognize, that, yes, self-reliance, independence, it's my driving value mm. to be independent. Even now? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. But I do recognize that asking for help is actually a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Yeah. That, yes, self-reliance is fabulous. It's what makes us all, you know, independent people and that we pay our bills and we pay our taxes. And, you know, it's, it's the heart of what makes this country the, the crazy country it is. We're all self-reliant. But there comes a point where it's not healthy. And that probably has been one of the greatest lessons that I've learned. It's still very, very hard for me to ask help. I give help. I'm, you know, I don't like asking for it but I'm getting better at asking and I'm getting better at receiving. 
when help is volunteered or offered. It, but it, it wasn't easy, and it still isn't. Hmm. Interesting. So you talked about all the things that pri- sort of made you a prize employee that were, in <laughs> fact, the opposite to for you to be um, a successful self-employed person. So right. were those things addressed in the therapy as well, or was that a different train? Sort of, sort of. It sort of came up. Most of what we worked on in therapy was the processing of the memories, mm-hmm. acknowledging the memory, mm-hmm. and then actively understanding how that incident impacted me as I grew and how it plays a role now. So, it was right at the end of therapy that we really started to work on making these changes. And it's something that I continue to work on on my own and through coaches and and that sort of thing. But I know that if I reach a point where I feel like, all right, I can't go any farther. I need, I need a a true trained professional. I I believe that I would reach out if I needed to do that. Mm -hmm. And I have, you know, when I need, some kind of tune-up or something. Mm. Okay. Let me just recap. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were a rising star in corporate land and then Kapow, you had a car accident, which really was the moment that changed your life. Mm-hmm. But even when it changed your life, you still had a choice. You had a choice to which direction you were going to go, and you chose through your friend Perseverance, you chose to, in some ways, would be the harder route because it meant that you would push yourself more, that, like, giving up is actually the easy road, accepting what that life was changed and that, the old life would never come back. In a way, that's the easy road. It, in the long term, it wouldn't be as uh, a fuller life, but that was, the, that was the choice that you could have taken and you didn't, t- you didn't take that. You took the harder route. Um, so what do you And I see that you've taken the harder route and you're, you know, you're reaping the rewards of that, of that harder route. So where do you see yourself in, you've mentioned that maybe you're 56, I don't know, maybe you are, we mentioned that. Yep. Um, so where do you see yourself in the next 10 or 15 years? I see myself continuing to help others who have hidden trauma that is holding them back from achieving the success that they really want, helping them recognize that and helping them move past it. I can see myself speaking on a national stage, perhaps, uh, because the issue, you know, people talk about the accident, and yes, it wasn't that really horrible. Yeah, the accident was bad, but the accident uncovered the original injury and that was the child abuse yes and there is there there are numbers out there that are estimated that about 75 to 90 percent of the adult population have experienced what's referred to as an adverse childhood experience and we're why do you think the world is as screwed up as it is, right? We're, we're all walking around with these emotional wounds and unresolved trauma, in my opinion. And there are people who can't admit that what they experienced was abuse. They, they can't admit that what they experienced was emotional trauma. So 
you know, I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to the people who recognize that something bad happened and that maybe it's still impacting me today and who want to recognize that, yes, that was awful, but it made you who you are today. So when, because I think that when you can recognize the gift in whatever crappy thing happened to you, that's really when true healing and growth happens. Yeah, I agree. So as much as, you know, as much as you might think that's warped or that you don't want to admit that, that abuse made me who I am. Mm. All of the pluses that I have came from that. So I'm not going to feel sorry that it happened. You know, I mean, I would have liked to have gotten these gifts in another box. Yes. That's a really, um, that's a, it's a really positive way of looking at it. So just to let you know, I that's what that's how I approach life. Mm-hmm. So when um, when my daughter died, I looked for the gems in the darkness. So in the grief, I I looked for the gems. I and I made it. I made a conscious effort to look for the positives out of this horrendous event. Okay. And that has actually been that action has actually really been the thing that transformed me through this through this I believe experience yeah. because yes, I was I always looking for and and of course if you look for the good if you look for the blessings you invariably find them right you know yeah. and you know so my daughter was um as generous in life but actually I think maybe she was even more generous in death because the gems have been huge. Yeah. Yes, we both tread a uh, the harder path, but I think I think we can both um, feel that we've accomplished something, even though we're still on the road to accomplishing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that that's how we make sense of things. Um, my faith has always been strong. Um, you know, knowing that people have less serious injuries that I have and, who, and die, I knew that I had to have been saved for a reason. Yes. So I was determined to figure that out. Mm. And... I really do believe that each of us, you know, that hero's journey, that each of us is yes. given that path to walk. And we've, we've got to, to go through those challenges so that we can then help other people and fulfill that role that we're called to. Yes, I agree. So that kind of thinking then lets you see that trial that you experienced as the gift, the honor mm. that it was to suffer so that you can help other people. Mm. And this is going to be a really strange sounding example, but this is one of the things that I stayed focused on in my whole recovery and in the recovery from the abuse experience. So I'm sure you know who Charles Manson is and you may probably remember the Manson murders. And I think this summer is their 50th anniversary. I was a child at the time. I was about seven. So I don't remember them in the moment, but obviously you can't escape them, right? It's part Mm -hmm. of the cultural knowledge that we, we carry. Mm -hmm. Sharon Tate had parents. No one would have blamed Doris Tate for staying in her house in the dark and eating bonbons for the rest of her life. No one. 
it was bad enough that her daughter and unborn grandchild died. They were, they died a horrific death being murdered Mm -hmm. in this way. And it's on the news. You can't escape it. Books are written about it. Movies are made about it. It Mm -hmm. is part of the, of the shared cultural experience and and then there's the you know the icon that Charles Manson himself becomes right in the in the popular culture. Doris Tate could have decided that she was just going to withdraw from life. She didn't. What she did was she became one of the first, if not the first, victims' rights advocates. She gave back to other people who had to deal with the court system in California. That, that to me is just, you know, I don't even know when I learned that fact, but it is something that continues to inspire me. Mm. I can see it's your guiding light. Yes. If, if she can be that brave, I can be that brave. Well, Winnie, you are already that brave. Thank you. I'm not, I don't know whether there's anything more that we can, we can (laughs) sensibly say after that. Um, I've enjoyed our time together. Um, It's been a different conversation. And I, I hope that we've been able to share or discuss the benefits of perseverance and Always see, looking, searching for the gems in the darkness, searching for the positives out of, out of even the darkest of things that happen because that's where the, that's where the magic is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say before we conclude our, our time together? No, I think you summed it up pretty well. Cool. Well, Winnie Anderson... I hope that we get a chance to have another conversation in the near future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Life is made up of a series of choices. We can let it drift with no conscious choice. We can go with the option that's easiest today, or we can step through that invisible veil, and they all lead to different destinations. Now you owe it to you to test yourself. Step through the veil. Be the best you, one baby step at a time. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation, go to www.karenpurvis.com forward slash conversation. Until our next deep dive, make your ordinary extraordinary. Bye-bye.